This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, welcome to the minefield. Trying to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Walid Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. And Scott, we have been bestowed a rare honour. <laughs> that begins, I think, today. Do you, for us, anyway. Do you know about this? No. I have no idea what I'm about to say. No. Am I, have We've I missed be, a meeting? Yeah, maybe this is the first time I went to a meeting you didn't. Oh, my goodness. Wouldn't that be something? Um, there was no meeting. No, I'm just reading it off a thing. Oh. Um, the, <laughs> apparently, the minefield has been chosen one of a handful of RN shows. This is, this is elite company that we're in, Scott. That's the point. It's not about the service we're about to provide to audiences. It's, it's about the glory upon us. That's what this is about. Anyway, we've been selected as part of a six-month trial of a transcription service. So from this week, uh, I understand, for the, the next podcast, listeners will find a transcript of the discussion attached in the notes for each episode. Can I just say good. how terrifying that is on every conceivable what? level? Having our yeah. words, I mean, there's, oh, there are reasons that I don't listen to our show. That have everything to do. Oh, geez, did I really say that? But the other thing that comes to mind, Willie, there's no transcription service in the world that's going to be able to handle some of the strange either neologisms or otherwise philosophically specific words that we throw. No, I'm sure it's going to be a wonderful service. I I think we should take this for a spin. Oh, really? Let's let's see if we can do the show in Latin or (laughs) something like that. (laughs) I mean, I'd have to learn Latin, which is an obstacle. I'm sure you know it. Um, anyway, that's all I have to say about that. We should also uh, let people know by, while we're doing housekeeping, we are now getting closer and closer by the week, as it would happen, to our uh, Not Quite a Book Club episode, which will focus on Faulty Towers. So that's all 12 episodes of it. Remember you said from the start when we were trying to de- describe what this thing was, that we would never do something like Seinfeld because there are too many episodes. Yes, that's right. I still disagree with you on that. I yeah, am probably. trying to get you to the point of doing Seinfeld. But Faulty Towers, you cannot raise that objection. No. <laughs> Only 12 of them. They go for, what, 20 minutes each, half an hour? Yep, that's right. I mean, it's basically it's shorter than a series. So there you go. So and that's coming up. So not a wasted yeah. word, not an imprecise pause. For reasons that I will save discussing until that show. Nice. But there, there are reasons for that. Anyway, so that's coming out uh, as a podcast and on the ABC Listen app and wherever you get podcasts. That's coming out on the 16th of March. So that's very soon. It's a couple of weeks away. And then it broadcasts first on the radio machine uh, on the 19th of March on RN, which is the Sunday show. Mm. So there we go. All right. Shall we do today's show? Let's do today's show. And it's a bit of a follow-on from last week. As often happens with some of our most productive, fertile, fecund, dare I say, conversations, there's all oh, sorts word. of stuff. Oh, fecund you've is really, wonderful. I told you about the transcription service and you've yeah, just take gone for that. It. Take that, AI. <laughs> um, actually, one of the most wonderful gerunds, in fact. That's not quite. Another fair. great word. You're in, in full anyway, today. Fecundity. Isn't fecundity just the most wonderful, yes. wonderful noun? I mean, I it's a great word. adore it. Anyway. Uh, As often happens with a lot of our discussions that we get to the end of and think, okay, we scratched the surface, but there's so much else. There's much more that was either raised in the course of the conversations we hadn't thought about, there were problems that came up, or it's just time for a part two. Uh, Last week's topic on early childhood education raised a whole lot of issues for me, a whole lot of issues for our listeners, issues for you, which in fact you flagged at the end of the episode. And so we decided, why don't we just follow up immediately? So what we're talking about today, we talked a bit about the role of education in the moral, democratic, emotional formation of the child. We talked about the differentiated responsibilities or roles on the part of, say, parents, family on the one hand, and then well-run educational institutions on the other. One of the things, of course, that that raises immediately is the precise nature, the basis, the foundation, the character, the limits of the moral formation that takes place in the home and that takes place in the very peculiar relationship 
between parent and child. Now, I should just say from the outset, there are all sorts of questions involving who actually is allowed to count as the parent of the child. Are we excluding any? Are we, is this simply sort of genetic or procreative parents? Is this adopt? We're not worrying about any of these things. So we're assuming that there is a significant relationship between a parent and a child. And it's a relationship that is singular. And I think in many respects is both singularly meaningful, but also singularly potentially fraught. There are things that can go wrong in the relationship between parent and child that can leave marks, that can leave, uh, let's call them emotional and even moral forms of deformation, if we're talking about moral formation as being a good thing, then de- you know, leaving, leaving scars, leaving ways of, of seeing oneself in a manner that is, that is harmful, it's detrimental, it's emotionally kind of malformed. Um, but there are also things that can go spectacularly right, of course, in that relationship between parent and child. So this is the question that I think we're putting ourselves Let me ask the headline question, and then I'll ask the underlying question beneath it, the one that really gets my juices going. So the headline question is, what would it mean to be a moral parent? What would it mean to be a moral parent? Is being a moral parent different from being a good parent? The question that that rumbles beneath that is this one for me. If we're imagining childhood as more or less running from about age three or four, in other words, around about the time that significant other adults are going to begin coming into that child's life. And if it runs to, let's say, 13, 14, so the beginning of the teens, maybe the onset of puberty slash adolescence. If we consider childhood as taking place in that bracket, more or less, During that time, to what extent should a parent, can a parent, I'm worried about this next word, Waleed. The word that comes Mm. to mind is impose, but I'm not sure that's the right word. It's really important you get this word right. I know, I know. So, So if it's not the right word, what might be? Impress, to some extent coercively, I don't know what the word is. I I honestly don't. And this is probably what's going to make up the conversation. Anyway, to what extent can or should a parent impose their moral convictions on their child? Can I just say something about what we mean by moral convictions? You've you've gone back to that verb, though. Yeah, I don't don't like it. But I feel like a lot's going to turn on it. Okay, let's just (laughs) say. Maybe not. Let's say this. Let's say this. To what extent can a parent, should a parent urge their moral convictions on their child. So urge, I think, has a hint of coerciveness, or at least it can't completely shake the notion of non-coercion. So this might be, I would really like you to feel the way that I feel about X, or it might be a series of fiction or non-fiction books that you read to your child that are all based around a similar theme that is meant to try to get your child to see the world or to see an aspect of it in a particular way. But what it has to do with is a somewhat heavy-handed approach to impressing a series of moral convictions on your child that go beyond, and here I think it's important to differentiate what we're not talking about here. So it seems to me that there are things that a parent absolutely will insist their child must not do, cannot do, cannot engage in for the sake of their own well-being, for the sake of their future selves. So, I mean, this would be part of the fundamental duty of care that any parent has over their child. And it might involve uh, being in appropriate company, not being with strangers, not being able to wander the streets unattended, not being able to go out in the middle of the night or even late at night. And then there would be things that Parents urge on their child that are a fundamental aspect of their development as soon-to-be adults. These would be uh, practices and habits that really are going to be fundamental for their ability to get along in meaningful relationships and get along in the world. Here we would say things like the child mightn't want to do. We would say things like 
going to school on time. We would say things like doing their homework. We would say things like truth-telling. We, we would probably classify that in that, wouldn't we, Waleed? Things like fundamental forms of empathy and even appropriate forms of self-sacrifice when it's to the benefit of somebody else. So those are the kinds of things that we would say, these are all good traits and habits that we would want children to have. But one of the things that I guess really sparked it for me is um, I don't eat meat in any form. I would very much love my wife and children, uh, both my boys are teenagers now, uh, to feel similarly because I think that this is an evil that we do on the planet. What makes it more difficult, Willie, is that I cook for the family. I do all the cooking. Mm -hmm. And none of them share my conviction remotely in this direction. So not only do they not share a conviction that I feel morally strongly about, but I am now also, am I not, complicit in something that I believe to be a, a moral, a, an intense moral wrong. Um, to use a slightly different example, but a, and probably less morally charged, I had mentioned a couple of weeks ago that my two boys were watching the NFL game between the Cincinnati Bengals and Buffalo Bills when DeMar Hamlin went into cardiac arrest on the field. You know how I feel about football. My boys love it. They love it. I would love for them not to. So there are things along these lines about which parents might have strong convictions. Can I stop you there? Yes, please. There are two subtly different versions of the question yeah. here. Like when you give those examples, they're, they're a little bit different. So if you're talking about cooking for the family, you could, for example, say, well, I have firm vegetarian convictions. I'm the cook. Therefore, I refuse to cook anything that violates those convictions. Yeah, that would be morally consistent, yes. You could then say you are imposing your morality upon your family, but you're not imposing it on the, the hearts of the members of your family. You're imposing it in their practice because you're the one doing the cooking. Mm -hmm. That's a different thing from saying, I want to corral them into sharing my conviction. Yes, through moral persuasion, through bringing it up repeatedly at the table, through yeah. watching documentaries with me or that sort of thing. Yeah. That's right. Well, that sort of thing. Except if you want to follow a kind of Pascalian route of saying, <laughs> well, by imposing the practice, I eventually reform the... You'll get there in the end. Yeah. yeah, which, you know, you could argue harmonizes these things, but you, you see that these are actually different questions. Yes. Cool. So when you pose the question about to what extent can or should a parent impose their moral convictions on the children, which version of the question do you mean? Mm -hmm. Oh, look, I'm, I mentioned about the cooking because it's something that I'm morally conflicted about. But for me, the bigger point is to what extent should I try to impress upon them? Should I try to, should I try to get them to see non-human animals in a way that I believe to be morally defensible? And I guess what I have in the back of my mind to some extent, Waleed, you know, there's this moment in Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, I believe it's in his uh, long essay on experience where he talks about the neutrality of children. Some religious traditions refer to an age before children can be culpable of wrongdoing or evil or before an age of sin, let's say. That's not quite what Emerson is talking about, though. He means, by the neutrality of children, he means the inhabitation of a world that is free from stress, that's free from anxiety, where one lives both freely and wildly, and one is equal to the wildness of the world. Where, yes, you might be thinking about the consequences of your action, but there's something fundamental about the one's particular inhabitation of the world that's meant not to elicit anxiety, that's meant not to elicit a strong sense of responsibility. And there's something about that incubatory stage of childhood that is vital, the freedom from responsibility, the freedom from anxiety and necessity. 
And it seems to me that it would be a very bad form of parenting indeed to try to fill one's child's life or consciousness with the awareness of forms of suffering or of potential landmines everywhere so that they need to live in the world in a manner that is fearful or self-questioning or self-doubting. Um, so th those, I guess, are the conflicting positions. Uh, there's something about the relationship between the parent and the child that draws upon and feeds upon the intense emotional connection that's there. But because of the nature of that emotional connection, there are possibilities for imposition and even domination of the life of the parent over the child. Now, that might be in various forms of disciplinary coercion. That might also be in the form of, say, moral heavy-handedness, uh, whereby the parent imposes a kind of vision of the world on the child. So this, I guess, is my, to what extent does it become morally impermissible for a parent to do that? When does it become, let's call it, morally counterproductive. So for the parent to keep harping on about a particular thing, that it jaundices the vision of the child, that they become resentful about something that if done in a more tender or more winsome way would maybe eventually get them there. And what are those points? What are those points of moral conviction where the parent basically just has to cede all responsibility altogether? This is something that hopefully some teacher, some friend might eventually help them with. But if I press it, then there's the chance of it kind of going terribly wrong. I feel like you're looking for generalised principle-based answers where they're thin on the ground because the, the answer will surely be contingent on the nature of the child, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. So I feel like I need you to reframe the question in some way so I can attack it <laughs> because, I mean, do you mean... How do we identify those issues that are so serious that the parent reserves a right to impose or coerce or um, strongly influence their child's moral formation? Or do you mean to ask a question of strategy? That is, how do I do it? Hmm. Hmm. I mean, they, they may actually be two sides of the same question, believe it or not. Yeah, because the way you framed, the way you were discussing it just before made it, one way you could interpret that would be to say, well, you're not really interested in the moral question of at what, you know, your right to impose a moral position. Mm. You're more interested in the most effective way to do that. And the most effective way to do that might be to back off at a certain point. Right? Now, I don't know if that's what you intended, but that that's a possible reading of what you're getting at. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think the more interesting question is what are the things on which a parent has that right to do by whatever means they feel will work best, whether they are um, more didactic or less didactic, but nonetheless to play a very active role in the moral formation of their children. Mm. But I'm not sure that's what you want to know. <laughs> so, no, of course it is. <laughs> Okay. So, so look, here's my, here's my sense. I mean, I'm really reluctant about ever thinking about strategies of moral formation that if I just do it this way or if I just play it softly or if I'm in it for the long haul that I'm going to get them there in the end. Because what that's then doing is it's saying that essentially all forms of moral formation are teleological. They're all based on the particular ends. And I may be a little bit passive in the way that I'm pursuing them, but I'm pursuing them nonetheless. I may be a little bit more kind of uh, seductive or easygoing in the way that I'm urging it, but deep down I'm urging it all the same. Mm. Um, I mean, that's, that's an understanding of morality that I'm not sure I buy into. Not that there are no, such, not that there are no such things as teloi, as ends within morality. But any relationship with another person that is agenda-driven in that way can't help, I think, but lead to a degree of suspicion that maybe this interaction isn't as carefree and easygoing as I thought it was. Maybe what's the underlying thing here? In other words, there's something about... But, but, no, no, but hang on. Let me pull you up there. Sure. Why do you presume that 
the interactions being carefree and easygoing is the primary good. Like, I'm not sure that's the, necessarily the role of a parent. Well, yes, but in some ways, there are aspects of the relationship, especially as it shifts in time and towards yeah. adolescence, where I think that is the proper disposition. It's not so much that you become their friend. There are a few things, I think, that are more revolting than seeing parents desperately trying to be the friends of their child. There's, a, I think, a fundamental abrogation, both of self-respect uh, and of duty at that particular mm. occasion. But, uh, for instance, so there's this moment in Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations where he talks about uh, when one tries to give justifications for why one does what one does. So you're supposed to imagine that you're talking to another person and, yeah, but why? And you keep going. Yeah, but why? And you keep going. Mm. And he says that at a certain point in the giving of justifications, one reaches bedrock, one's spade is turned, and at that point, it's no use to keep going with the same old justifications. And one can only mm -hmm. shrug one's shoulders and say, this is simply what I do. And it seems to me that there are those crucial moments in the life of a parent with a child where, yes, you want something for them because you think this is part of what it means to be a good human being. And yet you reach bedrock. There's no persuading. And at certain points, as the parent, to some extent, you would even have to say the moral act is to say, this is simply what I do, which isn't a form of resignation, but it's rather there's melancholy. I mean, you need to be careful that there's not a form of passive aggression there. But there's an invitation when it's time and you want to know more. When it's time and you want to talk about this, I'll be here waiting, spade in hand. So I think yeah, that's... But they're not the only alternatives, right? There, there are all other alternatives. You might connect them with peers who will influence them in the way that you want them to be influenced, for example. You might make a statement that is, I don't know, relatively cryptic, but which you suspect or hope will plant a seed that means they'll come to the realisation that you're hoping they come to on their own. These are all, I suppose, things you could describe as strategic they don't necessarily facilitate whatever it was you said before, the sort of easygoing exchange between two people. They might, they might not. Not all cards are on the table at that point mm. necessarily. Mm, true. But that strikes me as good parenting in a lot of cases. There might be some cases where it isn't, but in a, a lot of cases it, it is. In other words, I guess I see what I think you're trying to do, which is create some kind of harmony between means and ends. I just don't know that that harmony is necessarily a goal in this particular context. I think there is wisdom and it's opposite. Hmm. And it may well be that the wise thing for a parent to do, if they want their child to arrive at a certain position, is make that position something that appeals to their child <laughs> precisely because the parent is not asking them um, to reach it, right? <laughs> The whole reverse psychology thing. There are all kinds of tools that parents have in their kit bag. And I wouldn't want to morally load that kind of the tools. That kind of dissimulation, though, Willie. Wouldn't but you be worried about dissimulation. that? I mean, you're assuming it's dissimulation. I don't think it's necessarily dissimulation. Really? Well, yeah. I'm not asking you to lie to them. See, I... But you've, you've said it to me yourself. You've said it. You know there are certain things. If you recommend it, your kids are going nowhere near it. Yeah, that's right. All right. Do you think you have an obligation to recommend it nonetheless? Yes, I do. It, right. And thereby driving them to its opposite. Uh, to know that it's waiting there for them when they're ready. But you don't know that. The because framework you've put around there's a recommendation. will no, go no, the opposite no. direction. Well, no, because the recommendation, it could be, oh, yeah, of course, Dad likes Bob Dylan. Um, and yes, it might get the eye roll now. And they might not have any interest. But there's something, even when there's that kind of inevitable degree of parental child resentment, the child, I mean, resenting the parent or resenting what the parent really likes, there is something there that nonetheless can cultivate the conditions of a kind of interest, a degree of fascination, or at least later on, a certain nostalgia. I guess the, the question then becomes, what, what are the conditions of a childhood 
that is morally conducive and morally productive. Without that childhood becoming so morally overdetermined that they lose something fundamental about what it means to be a child. Or to grow into an adult, right? Yes, precisely. So what I think, what I'm thinking of there is a style of parenting that means that people don't learn how to make moral decisions. Yes, that's right. Or arrive at moral conclusions so that the morality just simply has to be served up to them. Now, I just think it's pretty unlikely that that's what you're going to produce anyway, because at some point kids fight back. And that's also why I think Socratic parenting doesn't work. Socratic parenting, uh, Socratic teaching would work because the relationship of authority that exists between student and teacher is radically different from the relationship that exists between child and parent, which is why the kind of steady drawing out by means of drip, drip, drip questioning, it's always emotionally inflected in ways uh, when the parent is involved, which is why I don't think it quite, yeah, anyway. Mm, which takes us back into what you're calling dissimulation, I think. Okay, we have a guest, Scott. So I have the Beach Boys song rattling around in my head, except at this instance, it's not Help Me Rhonda, it's Help Me Luara. Luara Frasioli <laughs> is Associate Professor in Political Philosophy, University of Sydney. Luara, I kind of feel like we might have backed ourselves or driven down a blind alley. I hope not, because I think there's some interesting things that have come up in the course of the conversation. You hear my agony as a parent and yet my reticence about morally overdetermining the world in which my children grow up, and yet at the same time wanting them to emerge as teenagers, as people who are capable of a degree of moral autonomy and the ability to see the world through a moral light. Can you help us out here? <laughs> well, I want to agree with Walid about how important it is to pay attention to the personality of the child when you are engaging the business of moral education, right? I think it's true that for some children, reverse psychology works really well. Some children need to be manipulated into <laughs> uh, developing their moral capacities. And uh, some children are just kind of, they idealize their parents so much, they're just going to listen. So I think it depends, you know, one of the jobs of the parent is to create the conditions for children to acquire moral education then you need, as a good parent, you need to tailor that process to the specific child. So that's one thing I wanted to say. But I think the question, when does the imposition of moral convictions become morally impermissible, I would say that it becomes impermissible when it makes it difficult for children to enjoy the goods of childhood. So, Scott, that goes back to your point about carefreeness. You don't want it to be the case that that process of educating your child for moral life robs them of the ability to be carefree, for example, or enjoy friendships, right? So we need to think about what it means for childhoods to go well, and then we need to make sure that when parents engage in the business of educating their children morally, they don't uh, make it difficult for children to enjoy those goods. So that would be one kind of limit on that process. And the other would be when it deprives the child from acquiring the skills they need to become autonomous, the skills necessary for children to become autonomous later on in life so that they can then assess whether some of those moral convictions are things they want to retain or things that don't suit them given what they care about as adults. So we need to think both about a good childhood and a good adulthood, and I'm here assuming that some level of autonomy is necessary for a good adulthood. I know, big big claim, but <laughs> I, I want to put it out there. And I think the parent needs to make sure that um, the child is developing the critical thinking skills, the imagination, the creativity, all those things that are required for them to then, when they make their own choices in life. But if you're able to share your values with your child, the things you care deeply about, what you take to be deep truth about the world in a way that doesn't deprive them of the goods of childhood and in a way that doesn't make it hard for them to become autonomous, then I think that's, that's great. That's wonderful. That will make so that relationship if... meaningful. Right. Okay. But take Scott's vegetarian example. Yeah. Would imposing a vegetarian diet on children alongside a moral conviction about vegetarianism be depriving them of the goods of childhood? How do we discern that which properly constitutes the goods of childhood from that which is properly a matter of constraint? 
Right. So I think carefreeness is one of the goods of childhood. And I do think you can do it in a way that makes the child very anxious so that it would be impermissible. Mm. So fine to tell them that you, you, know, you care about animals. Why is it that you, you're a vegetarian? Share vegetarian food with them. Kind of show your excitement when you go to a restaurant that has good vegetarian options. All those things. I think that I can't see how that would make the child any less carefree, but you can see how a parent could uh, cross a line there and share those convictions in a way that creates a lot of anxiety for the child. And then there I would say that it is becoming quite problematic. I think age has a lot to do with this, right? Yeah, because yeah. I think that's right. if you, I don't know, funnel your children towards the vegetarian options at the restaurant, okay, that's fine. But eventually they go to school, they run into someone who starts teasing them for it or whatever. They're no longer carefree in that way. And so this changes the equation somewhat. What What is the parent to do at that point, right? So here you have a parent with, let's take Scott at his word, has a, has a deeply held moral conviction about something and now sees that that moral conviction is causing pain for that child. Mm. Carefreeness isn't really an option. How do we apply these principles you've articulated? I mean, if the child is no longer carefree and we're still talking about children, not adolescents, then I think the parent has to kind of <laughs> take a step back and think about how to reintroduce the conditions for carefreeness. I don't think you should give up on carefreeness for a child that's sh showing signs of anxiety, you know, worrying about, say, climate change, deeply troubled about the world. I think it's really important the parent tries to bring that child back to that world of carefreeness. Childhood is a very short period of life, right? So we talked, Scott, I think in the beginning you said something like from 3 to 13, 14. It's only 10 years. That's it. That's a very short period to enjoy the goods of childhood. And it's really important that parents are aware of the fact that it goes very quickly and some of those goods can be enjoyed later on. I think carefreeness is a great example. Even when you're carefree later on in life, you're not carefree in the same way. It's not as valuable sometimes. It can even get in the way of a good adulthood, right? And so one thing that troubled me a lot during the COVID years when we were keeping children at home and letting them go to school and, you know, it, people would say things like, oh, it's just another year or but in the life of a child, that's a, that's a very long period. For children not to enjoy the goods of childhood for a year, for two years, is a, I think uh, it's a tragedy. It's um, a big loss. And so, yes, I think the parent needs to make sure that if they see signs of anxiety, stress in a child, that they uh, maybe reach out to experts or, or family members, try and see how, in what ways they can bring that child back. To, to a world of carefreeness. But carefreeness, I don't think, is the only good of childhood. Friendship is another good of childhood. Um, achievement that's kind of uh, motivated by curiosity rather than, you know, competitiveness. So it depends on the motivation. But I think when children are generally interested and curious about something and the parents support them, but it's kind of child-driven, I think that's a good of childhood. And it's, again... Uh, one of the wonderful things we can do as children and later on it becomes much, much harder because achievement then becomes more instrumental. It's more about, you know, uh, becoming a successful adult, having a certain level of income, all those things come in and take away some of the magic that's there in childhood when a child is generally very interested in a sport because she loves it or some artistic endeavor, whatever. Hmm. I think some of the emotional dimensions to all this, Luar, are what sort of fascinate me perpetually. For instance, you would often have, if we sort of think about a child who is, let's not say a child who is necessarily overly acquiescent, that just sort of, you know, gives into whatever, but is so desperate for the approval of her or his parent. And so they find themselves, or they end up aping or mimicking certain things that they know will achieve or attract the approval of their parent. I mean, you could make the Pascalian point that, you know, they're acting a particular way and therefore the moral convictions will eventually follow. That seems to me to be a recipe for the deepest form of resentment, uh, as if the parent's approval or affection was in some way contingent upon them arriving at the same sort of moral position 
as sorry, but sorry, Scott, that that happens in all sorts of cases, even of trivial ones. This is why I hold families barrack for the same sporting team, for example. You're inducted into it. You take on the behaviour, and then it all kind of follows. That just strikes me as a very effective and quite ennobling process. Okay, but I mean, there are aspects of it in certain walks of life that can be. But when it comes to things that are meant to become part of the emotional and moral makeup of the child, for the child to believe at any point that somehow the parent's uh, affections or their belonging in a family would somehow be contingent, that I think is where maybe the parent giving the child a degree of license, the degree of freedom, maybe even empowering them to some extent to make decisions or to explore options that the parent, him or herself, does not hold. That would be one of the ways in which the long-term conditions of possibility of the relationship between the parent and child could then be cultivated. And that's why I guess I keep coming back to the dissimulation, kind of using reverse psychology with the child. It just strikes me that any form of communication that is seeking a particular end and then uses a means that if found out or if realized would lead to the breakdown of trust between the parent and child, the breakdown of believability, credibility between parent and child, that just strikes me as being really dangerous on all sorts of fronts. I think reverse psychology, I have a three-year-old, so (laughs) I'm all for reverse psychology at the moment. No, don't eat those mushy peas. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I agree that it is problematic when parents make their love conditional on the child sharing some values or, or convictions. But sometimes the child might feel this way, even if the parent doesn't mean yes. to, right? That's what I meant, yes. And that's I, right. Yes, and I think, of course, parents should be aware of that, but sometimes the parent cares so deeply about something and the child feels like uh, she needs to join in. And like I said, if that's still compatible with the child enjoying the goods of childhood, having a good childhood, uh, and the parent's not going so far as to kind of deprive the child, it's not depriving the child from acquiring the skills necessary for autonomy, for example, is not kind of homeschooling the child and then, you know, doing everything for the child not to become a critical thinker, for example, then I think it's, um, it's permissible. It's, it will often be part of family life. If they acquire those skills, say, in, at school, that would be, I think, the obvious place mm. for children to acquire the skills they need for autonomy, um, then later on the child can look back and think, is that something I still want to pursue? Or was that something I did with my parent as part of that relationship, but it no longer makes sense to me? And I think the parent that also wants to deprive the child from having the ability to make those revisions later on, Mm. That parent is treating the child in an instrumental way. It's like the the values matter more, and that's problematic. But it's okay, I think, if the parent is aware that one day the child might reject those values. But right now, they are in this kind of intense, intimate, loving relationship. And right now, they are pursuing those values together. So I have one son who is... Whenever I read Montaigne... I, I think of my youngest. Um, Montaigne said that he wasn't sure if he was a virtuous person because he knew that he was just a good person. He just has no inclination of doing these evil things. Does that mean he's virtuous because he's never had a struggle with those evil impulses? So one of my is just he's just good. He's a good boy. If I ever found out that he was cruel to another person or deliberately harmful or in some way vindictive or deceitful, I mean, it would, it would crush me. It would make me think that I just didn't know this boy at all. I can't wait to hear about the other one. (laughs) I have another son, I have four children, who is socially, how can I put it? He's socially promiscuous. Place him in the middle of kind of a crowd of kids and he'll quickly discern what is the most popular thing for him to be gravitating towards. He's very good at reading situations and ingratiating himself to others. He's got a defiant streak. Can I just confess? I love it. It's the one thing about him that doesn't make me terrified about his inability later on to think for himself and to make clear decisions in his own interests. When does a parent begin, and I realize there's no blanket rule, but every once in a while, isn't a defiant child, and there are forms of defiance that are just oppositional, they're purely oppositional and nihilistically so. But I'm wondering about 
the role of encouraging a certain degree of nonconformism, a certain degree of defiance within the inner emotional confines of the parent-child relationship itself. Have I expressed that okay, Laura? Yeah, I mean, I think if one thing you care about is autonomy as a parent, if that's one of the values you take seriously, then of course you're going to want to see that in your child, right? Because this ability to think for, for oneself already very early on and, yeah, make their own decisions, that's something that should become even stronger later on in life. So I can see how a parent who cares a lot about autonomy will see a child like your child and be, you know, proud and excited because you can already, you're already seeing the signs of a, of a person that feels strongly about pursuing the things she cares about. But there are also parents who don't care that much about autonomy, right? Mm. They want their children to conform. And I think we just have to be a bit careful that the good parent is not, you know, that we're not pushing for, for a view here where the good parent is necessarily a liberal parent, mm. right? Mm. I think, let me, let, since we are sharing uh, personal examples, I grew up in Brazil and my parents, I wouldn't say they cared a lot about autonomy because they felt very deeply that I had to study medicine, that I had to live in a certain place. And they, they kind of had a whole life script ready for me. Uh, and they're wonderful parents in many other ways. They cared deeply about me and created the conditions for me to lead a good life and never got in the way of me developing the skills for autonomy. And I did and then decided I wasn't going to become a doctor. Uh, but I think the fact that they weren't encouraging me at no point in childhood there was an encouragement from their end that I, you know, I resisted authority. I don't think that means they weren't good parents, right? Hmm, hmm. The way I hear what you're saying, Scott, is that really what you like is the defiance, the autonomy, the strong-mindedness, but on a foundation of something. Sure. I mean, yeah. if, if it were just defiance for defiance's sake, then it tips over into what's nihilistic. Yeah, Which I, I agree. don't... I mean, what you've said, you've been explicit, you don't like that. Mm. And so... You don't really like defiance per se. You like the sort of creative possibilities of it. <laughs> you like the potential, I don't know, insights or virtuosity that it potentially offers. But I, I think this is a safe assumption. You need it to be tethered to some kind of conviction that you share and that you want your child to share yes. with you. Right. That's, that's fair. I mean, what I, maybe I didn't communicate clearly. I worry constantly about his social tendencies towards mere conformity. I take heart in his moments of overt, is it principled defiance? Every once in a while, it's just plain defiance. But I also just get the sense from him, these flashes of principled defiance where I think, no, he really does have that capacity for genuine autonomy within him. But yes, but, but the principles are the thing that matter, right? That's right. I would be stunned if you were happy with the defiance if it were either unprincipled or if it were based on principles that you reject. Yes. I mean, that defiance could look like all kinds of horrific drug use. Mm, that's for right. Example. That's right. I can't imagine you celebrating that. That defiance could look like a kind of pathological greed. Mm, mm. I can't imagine you would like that. Or for me, the deeper thing, I mean, this is the zero limit always for me is if it was tethered to or somehow emerged from a kind of a deep misanthropy or misogyny or, or it tended towards cruelty, a kind of unfeelingness. It was defiance and a mere assertion of self and will over and against the well-being of others. That, for me, would be the most concerning thing. Of so, in other words, none of this works without a moral substrate. Yes, that's right. None of this works without some kind of imposition of a moral worldview or if you don't like imposition, whatever, Cultivation, at least, yeah. whatever you wanted, yeah, of a particular moral worldview upon the child. Once you feel that's secure, then you feel like they can improvise within limits or they mm. can improvise with reference to something that is solid. The analogy of a sporting game works really well here, right? If everyone turns up and there are no agreed rules, then what you get is a disaster. But once you have agreed rules about what the sport is, what the aim of it is, etc., then for people to, I don't know, defy instructions or whatever, 
to improvise, to become creative, then that works. Then that's exciting. Then that is something that you can look back on behold with a great deal of pride if you're the parent or whatever, or the coach. Right? But it only works because of <laughs> there's an agreement of what we're trying to achieve here and what the basic rules are. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart. You say it's a ball game, I say it's not. Now what? <laughs> you can't. There is nothing, right? Hmm. Laura, do you want to pick us up there? Yeah, I think that's right. So the end, because I'm sure you're a great parent, is to create the conditions for your child to live a good life. And you think that that disposition is compatible with, with that. In fact, you think in many ways it will facilitate choices that will lead your son to lead a good life, you know, have great experiences in childhood or adolescence now and then later adulthood. But the, the thing is, for each parent, the question, what does it mean to lead a good life, is a question that's answered differently because there are moral values that are kind of part and parcel of a good life. So I think taking a step back and thinking about parenting more generally, rather than just how we should relate to our own children, I think with, in a liberal society, so long as we're talking about reasonable <laughs> conceptions of the good, that I think parents should be free to share those conceptions with their children. They should be, feel free to share with their children what they take to be deep truth about the world, but not in a way that deprives them of that later ability to then revise, you know, those values and truths about okay, the but, world. But then that moment comes when you know my child will never accept that coming from me. And you hope, without maybe being too strategic and manipulative, you hope that they come across somebody else, maybe a teacher, maybe a friend, maybe a peer, from whom they can hear something vital from. I'll just say I'm, I'm in mourning. My two little youngest boys have just begun their first basketball season without me coaching them. I just couldn't coach them anymore because everyone else on the team listened to what I said except for them. And yet they're now doing exactly what I always hoped that they would do because it's in the mouth of another coach. I think we've all seen it, haven't we? Our children not able to accept something from us and the proper moment of parenthood at that point is to have the wits and the wisdom to be able to step back and maybe hope that something good comes from someone one or two or three steps removed. Yeah, so, so I think that's right. And I think that's why so often we want our children to spend time with friends we share values with, right? Uh, family members that think like us about life and uh, care about similar things. And I think parents should feel entitled to do that as well. I think it becomes problematic when parents want to deprive their children of an education mm. that's necessary for the development of autonomy. So here we're talking about, for example... Going back to uh, last week's theme, yeah. uh, you know, a school, for example, a religious school that doesn't leave much space for the development of autonomy, then I think it becomes really problematic because the child is not acquiring those skills at home and she doesn't have a space where she can then develop those skills. Mm. So that's why I'm not comfortable with religious schools. I think we should have public, secular schools because we need to create a space where all children develop the imagination, the creativity, the self-esteem required to make their own life choices so that, you know, they, they can become autonomous. But that doesn't rule out religious education on the side, right, on the weekend, after school, what have you. I'm not saying you can't give your child a religious education, for example, or say a moral education with a friend that you want your child to learn more about vegetarianism, so you want your child to spend more time with that vegetarian friend that has very good arguments by all means, but I think it becomes problematic when you choose a school that's not on board with developing the child's autonomy. Because there needs to be one space for all children to develop those skills. They need to later on see different options that are on the table as live options, right? So if they've been raised in a vegetarian family, let's just... <laughs> Let's not have a debate about who is right here. I mean, I'm, a, I'm Brazilian. We, it's very hard for me to become <laughs> vegetarian, right? So uh, whether they're eating meat uh, with me or your children being vegetarians with you, Scott, there needs to be a place 
for them to acquire the skills they need to then make their own call later on. Mm, interesting. This seems, I mean, this is now a can of worms. I don't want to open it too much. <laughs> I know, I was trying the... to avoid it. But in a way, yeah. we can't expect the parent to do that, right? Because the parent is in the business of sharing values. That They right. see that as such an important part of that relationship. And of course, within reason, it is, right? Sharing your religion, your worldview, what books you yes, like, and... whatever it is. But then it can't go as far as to deprive the child from developing those skills. Yeah, but I just think it's autonomy. A, it's a it's a fairly jaundiced view of religious schools, though, to say that that's what they do. No, no, no. You're right. Some schools don't do that, and that that would be compatible. I mean, I think ideally, schools would be all would be public, compulsory, and secular. That's my view. I don't like homeschooling. I I think it's important that these are public, secular institutions, and all children are acquiring you know, very similar liberal education and liberal society. But um, you're right that some schools still create the conditions for autonomy, and that's great. I'm, yeah, so, I'm okay uh, with that. I would, I would argue... But in terms of the ideal, I think the ideal would be a system of public, liberal, secular. But I would argue schooling. that one of, the, one of the motivations for the establishment of religious schools is that that schooling you describe isn't providing for their autonomy. It's imposing a particular view of the world that their parents don't like and that that's the view of the world that kids will walk away with. And so they then have to spend the rest of their lives outside of school trying to fight against it. The notion I, I am a bit resistant to here is that there is something somehow neutral and opening up about what the phrase you use, liberal secular education, and it's reserved only for that, rather than that actually that's a perspective. And yet there is something that is not neutral that is, you know, I don't know, confessional or whatever word you might want to use about private schools or religious schools or so on and so forth. Sometimes I think there's a neutrality assumption there that actually isn't a neutrality. What it is, is just a particular ideological commitment. Yeah, okay. we could have a discussion about this forever. I mean, I think it is sufficiently neutral. It is about inculcating the values of fairness, freedom, equality. These are good values in a liberal society. And in a liberal society, everyone should be free to then pursue whatever else they care about, so long as it's compatible with treating their fellow citizens as free and equal. So, you know, this kind of ideal school system that I have in mind would in no way prevent children from still subscribing to certain religious worldview or uh, be or not be vegetarian, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> we, we did get hung up on the vegetarian. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. that uh, well, Laura, you've done <laughs> no, I don't want to just yeah. focus on religion because in this debate, people often do. And of course, we need to, to talk about religion. Religious values are some of the values that we're talking about. But it's also true that we're talking about non-religious moral commitments here. And then there is a question about whether even non-religious parents are allowed to deprive their children from the skills they need to make their own decisions about those values. And I think they're not. They can share those values, but then they should still make sure that children, or should not get in the way <laughs> of an education or of a school system that creates the conditions for children to then make their own decisions in adulthood. Well, we spoke to you today because at the end of the last episode, we got delivered to a sequel that we had to explore, and now you've delivered us to another one. Always a good sign, I think, of where this conversation has ended up. Luara, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's been good to have you on the show Wonderful to again. be here. Thank you. Luara Ferraccioli, Associate Professor in Political Philosophy at the University of Sydney, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're done for the week. We'll see you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.